The future will be amazing. And that's all well and good. But what about today? You can feel the rush of a 400-horsepower Nissan Z. Or climb to new heights in the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. Light up the road in the all-electric Nissan Aria that feels like a sci-fi dream come true. The future will be great, but today is made for thrill. All you have to do is get in a Nissan and drive. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase. Expected availability is this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria. Hi, Chris. Hi, Anya. How are you today? I'm very happy and excited to record this new episode, actually. How about you? I'm pretty much in the same boat. Who are we talking about today? So today we're covering one of the oldest cold cases of New Zealand, the abduction, rape and murder of Olive Walker, a Maori teenager that was murdered on 1970, on the 15th of May of 1970. Yeah. So next month is going to be 51 years since their crime. And mysteriously, even though there is a load of physical evidence in the crime scene, mm. yeah, the suspect, the perpetrator or perpetrators were never found. Indeed. Now, this crime took place up in the town of Rotoroa. Yeah. North Island. North Island of New Zealand. And... A place particularly popular as a touristic spot. Yes. Nowadays mm -hmm. and 15 years ago. Yes. At the time, there was a lot of logging industry as well as agriculture, but uh, a lot of people in the area were involved in, in the logging industry, and, and as you will see, that actually ties in quite substantially to uh, a piece of the evidence in, uh, involved. In the grind. Mm -hmm. So, Olive, Olivia Walker was born the 4th of May of... 1952 she was one of she was part of, of a big, yeah, big Maori family. family her mother was Julia Walker and her father was Harry Tepo Walker mm -hmm. although according to one of my sources the book by a person or person unknown Walker wasn't originally their their surname the original surname of them was Waka but it was anglicized by Olive's grandparent, probably perhaps expecting it to be a um, benefit for the family to mm. live in a colonized country. In a after white all. man's world. Yep. Exactly. And according to the same book, uh, neither the parent of Olive or cousins and aunts were happy about that. They were actually very proud of being an almost pure blood uh, Maori family. And Harry Walker, the father of Olive, actually fought in the Second World War in the 28th Maori Battalion. 
Yep, which was made up of volunteers and fought on the front lines in uh, southern Europe uh, during World War Two. And he survived the Battle of Monte Cassino in mm. Italy, so he was a war veteran. Yeah. Olive was barely 18 years old. She, her birthday was just 10 days before the day, the night of her murder. Yeah. Of her murder. So mm. we have, it's very odd because there is a lot of uh, physical evidence, but at the same time it was kind of hard to track the sources, so we use mainly the New Zealand Herald, the Rotorua Daily Post, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of information that keeps being repeated in those news. And then we used a book of the 1980s decade by a person of, or persons unknown, by the author, the Kiwi author George Joseph, a lawyer and journalist, mm -hmm. and an episode on a series of psychic involving uh, how can I say it? It's, it's like a it's it's one of the uh, psychics who talk to deceased persons or receive prompts from you know beyond beyond the veil to uh, gain new information and and communicate with with family members and loved ones and you know perhaps point out who you know may have committed the crime. committed the crime. So this episode of Sense and Murder, which is the name of the of the series, was aired air on uh, 2006. Mm -hmm. Did I say air? Okay. Aired. Aired. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> In 2006, yeah. we could only find uh, first-person testimonies of mm. their families, and also the many different detectives that were involved in the investigation mm -hmm. through these years. We are not. But I'm really believe in psychics. No, <laughs> especially in, yeah, not for uh, ev gathering of of evidence, but factual evidence. But it, it one of those things that did actually uh, drum up a bit more interest and maybe jog some people's memories as much as anything, and did point out some interesting or did bring to light some interesting key outcomes. pieces of e outcomes, and maybe drew a few lines. Through thing, you know, to things that that you know weren't connected before, and apparently did actually. It actually caused the public, the public, mm. to to be interested in the murder of Olivia mm. uh, once again. So perhaps that was the most yeah. important. And it did actually result in um, quite a bit of feedback from the public to the museum police, which is a good thing. But first. Let's go back to the night of the crime. So Olive had arranged with one of her older sisters, Mary Dillon, that she would go to babysit her nephews mm -hmm. and nieces. That's right. It's said by all the people that knew Olive that she was a particularly calm and gentle girl and very also extremely shy so according to her sister Mary in the Sensing Murder uh, series she was the only one that could handle her little children. Mary was said had said that um, Olive tended to keep to herself being quite shy although she did occasionally go out on weekends to socialize at the uh, I guess the the police disco. The police disco. Yep. I think that was such a weird thing to do. Mm. Like 
police running. I, I think it's just a safe place for young people to get together and socialize, you know, off rather than, you know, hanging out on this, you know, on the street, but, you know, hanging out, drinking, getting, you know, smoking, getting into trouble. It's just a safe place. Kids could get together and socialize, have fun. And it was just, yeah, just a safe place. At least I used to have them back in the, the country in uh, rural Western Australia, the, uh, the blue light discos. Um, oh, they had that in Australia. They had them in That's Australia it. as well. So there That's you go. But it was just a fun social thing for local kids um, in rural communities. But it's actually said that Mary would uh, rather just um, sit in a corner quietly and mm. just wave and smile at the people yeah. that were dancing and enjoying themselves. Yeah. I mean, it seems like she would enjoy herself Mm-mm. doing that by keeping apart. So... Um, this is what we mean when we say that she was particularly shy. Mm-hmm. So Ollie was living with her parents. Mm-hmm. She had been going to secondary school until she was 14. And she had been working doing odd jobs for a couple of years. The parents would say that she would take particular pride in keeping their house and their garden very tidy Mm -hmm. and clean and that she would often offer to clean other people's garden just for the hell of it and of course being a babysitter so their house was on leslie street and she was set to walk to her sister mary's place which was on malfroy street so that was when I look at the when I look at um, at the map of Rotorua, it's mm. like a quite a big distance. It's almost twenty blocks. Mm. So originally, what Olive um, parent, Olive uh, dad would say is that uh, she left her house at six forty five p.m. Mm-hmm. She was actually going to. She was meant to catch the bus, but she was seen by a witness shortly after 7 p.m., walking into the Rotorua city center. Actual, actually, one of these witnesses that saw her was a person that was on the bus. So that's why it's it is says in many of the sources that she actually lost the bus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at 7.15 p.m., she was seen by some of her high school classmates, in the city center of Rotorua, in the front of the Odeon Theater. And about 9 p.m. afterwards, a witness would say that, uh, an eyewitness would say that she was seen on the main street of Rotorua. At approximately 11.50, the police were called by a group of teenagers that found an apparently lifeless body in a lay-by that it's about five kilometers south of Rotorua. Yeah, exactly. Just by the Baipa Mill. The group of teenagers were four young people in a car driven by a, by a guy called Trevor Donald Frew, who earlier in that evening mm-hmm. had been attended to the cinema. And this lay-by was basically an open space with some picnic tables mm-hmm. where young adolescents would go to intimate in the dark Mm -hmm. and just hang out you know maybe have a few beers hang out get up to some trouble and And they actually did get in some trouble yes so this is curious because when these um this group 
voice, uh, the one that was driven by Trevor Donald Frew, when they got into the um, lay-by, it was at um, there was another car there with uh, a teenage couple, a boy called Bennett and his girlfriend that had been spending some time in the lay-by already. Mm-hmm. So when Donald Frew and his people got into the lay-by, this other boy, Bennett, quickly turned around and left with his car in mm-hmm. the place. And it's when Donald Drew gets out of the car is when they saw the body of who the police didn't know at that time, but we now know was Olivia Walker. Yeah. She was fully dressed and she had been dragged for a couple of meters uh, until being left near a picnic table. She had been striked in the head several times with mm-hmm. an instrument like a hammer or a tire. Tire iron. So- yeah. Something with protrusions on it. Exactly. And her skull was actually fractured in seven pieces. Mm-hmm. It was later on discovered that even though she was fully closed, she had been sexually abused because there was found semen on her underwear and her body. The body of Olivia didn't have any sort of ID. So initially when the police gets there almost before midnight and they take it, Mm -hmm. they didn't know about her identity. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the next morning that Mary Dillon, her sister, Mm -hmm. the sister that was waiting for Olivia to get home and babysit her nieces, that she heard in the news that the body of a young woman, a Maori woman, was found. And she says that initially she wasn't um, worried about Olivia. I mean, mm. she she went to bed expecting um, Olive to just get into the house because it seems like that that's how safe they, they mm. felt in the community. Mm. But it was just at the, at the next morning when she called their parents mm. that she discovered that Olivia... Not only Olivia didn't go to her house, but she wasn't even at her house. She says in the Sensing Murder series that perhaps she thought that maybe Olivia had encountered some acquaintances and maybe joined them, mm. even though even though she didn't have many friends. But anyhow, she was the first one to contact the police and actually to identify the remains yeah. of Olive. I mean, it's unfortunate that it was one of those circumstances where someone was expected somewhere and there was a, I guess, miscom- you know, there was a legitimate miscommunication between both locations that she wasn't expected anywhere. So it was, she was assumed to be at need, you know, uh, at. Well, she was other. expected to be at uh, Mary's house, actually, but she wouldn't be surprised if mm. she had a. Uh, change her mind that's yeah. what she said that she just that thought sometimes yeah. that yeah she changed so her she mind. wasn't she wasn't you know no one she wasn't missing i mean it was 15 years ago i guess that people didn't have the same sense of impending danger as mm. we might have nowadays and they certainly didn't have cell phones no, to communicate no. so it's only at the next morning that the victim is identified as olive walker mm-hmm. So even though she had few friends, uh, she was never invited to parties. That's what her parents said. In one news, she was very well known and mm-hmm. loved in the community. So there was a big of an outreach 
Um, after that, so the police promptly started to investigate about all the factual evidence mm-hmm. that could be found in the crime scene and Olive. Mm-hmm. So, do you want to tell what was found in the crime scene? Well, one of the major uh, factors that uh, one of the major pieces of evidence that was discovered in the crime scene was that of uh, footprints. Um, For a start, there were no footprints of olives that belonged to Olive, which implied that she had been dragged from the car, where it was seen that she was... uh, the the drag marks had started, Mm -hmm. and that there was a pool of blood Mm -hmm. at the start of the drag marks, which would suggest that that's where she was killed and and dragged from um, it, then it was also found that the killer threw olive shoes uh, into the into the nearby scrubland it also at the site um, there was a uh, another set of footprints that uh, would be found 11 distinctive footprints from a kiwi flex work boot Mm-hmm. which was actually commonly used by the forestry workers around the site uh, around Rotorua. However, one of the one of the uh, factors that would make it somewhat easier to track down or narrow down a list of suspects being such common foot uh, footwear was that these were size 6 and that's quite small for a for a forestry worker, or for you know, a, for a, you know, a, a grown male in in a fairly labour-intensive industry like forestry, um, so, that only five percent of all the Kiwi Flex boot of that model were size sixteen. Mm-hmm. So, what the police think is that it was either a short person or perhaps an adolescent, mm. and. An expert in footprints would analyze uh, well those footprints precisely, and they ter- determined that the person that was wearing those shoes had some sort of defect or deformity in, in the hips, hips. Yeah. and that would indicate that the person, the wearer, mm. could be Maori or from the Pacific Island. I I couldn't find exactly why would be that if that's a common or an statistically more common deformity mm. among that ethnic group. But that's, uh, uh, yeah, according to uh, forensic experts, is, is is a thing. More likely. Yeah. Also, there were some tyre tracks left by the vehicle, which uh, where the drag marks started, and they would indicate one of the tyres was odd and that a lot of the models would um, indicate that it was a light utility vehicle or some sort of light van. The investigators measured the vehicle turning and it had to be one of seven different models. They could have been a Hillman, a Humber, a Carrier or Gomer van, a Standard 8 or 10, a Gazelle, a Sunbeam Ropier or a Bradford truck or van, which I have no Knowledge of cars, so I don't know what yeah. are those, but you say that were utility, utility cards. Yeah. So fair enough. And let's remember that the place where she was found 
was actually a couple of a hundred of kilometers near to a Weipa mill. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised of that sort of track yeah. being around. Mm -hmm. Especially in you know that that area at that time was was you know was still quite rural and and still largely is. So a lot of people living on selections, as they're called, or you know small small farms or semi-rural blocks. You know, a lot of people have, have utility vehicles or you know, small... Um, or travellers. Yeah. I'm always thinking that a Comer van is very common uh, among mm -hmm. travellers because yeah. it's uh, wide enough to make a little self-contained mm -hmm. band. That's it. Also. So there was these witnesses that I think they were interesting because I could only find the names on the George uh, mm. book which is uh, this this boy, Bennett, and his girlfriend, because they went out of the lay-by at 11.30 mm. when the other group of teenagers came in and found the body, but they didn't saw the body. Mm. They, according to this book, Bennett and his girlfriend weren't suspects. It doesn't mm. explain why. But it says that it was estimated that they arrived at the rest area about 10.55, having driven there after attending to a picture hmm. theater. But they never saw neither the body or anyone coming into the lay area hmm. until this boy, Fru, came. So according to this book, at least, Olive must have been killed before 10.55. Mm-hmm. So the time, the estimated time of, of her disappearance is between 9 p.m. and 10.55. Mm -hmm. According to the former detective Bill Beck, who was involved in the, in the original investigation for Olive's crime, some witnesses later on came out and claimed to have heard some screaming, female screaming, around the area of the main street of Rotorua at approximately 9 p.m. And the pathologist indicated that she died between 9.15 and 10.15. I mean, despite all the collected evidence, the police uh, detectives were unable to come up with a decisive suspect. Initially, there were over 370 suspects. suspects. 370 suspects. And by the end of 1970, they had been interviewed over 700 people. Uh, in July, actually, of that same year, there was offered a $6,000 uh, Reward for Reward. any information. About the crime, and 1,800 vehicles have been taken by the police and investigated, mm -hmm. according to the information of the, well, mm -hmm. what the evidence they already had. Mm -hmm. But for many years, there, was, there were very few suspects that we could talk about. Mm -hmm. One of them was... Actually, one of the... Um, a, a, either a close friend of the family or or, or a relative of I the family? I think it was it was a relative, either an uncle or a cousin. Mm. In the episode of Sensing Murder they talk about they talk about a relative that has 
had had some trouble with some legal issue that perhaps was an ex-convict, but mm. we don't know exactly for what crimes. Yeah. But he had an alibi for mm -hmm. that night. A, yeah, a he very was, solid alibi. So yeah, he, he was with his wife. Yeah, and he also didn't have a vehicle, which it it's not so. I mean, he could have gotten a car with anybody else. I mm -hmm. mean, he could have had an accomplice. That's why I think that maybe there were more than one people mm -hmm. involved in this crime. Mm. But this man had an alibi, and he wasn't size six, mm -hmm. which is the, one of the most one important of the main, yeah. evidence we have mm -hmm. about the suspect. It should also be mentioned that around this time, there were a series of murders committed around the northern parts of the North Island of New Zealand, particularly that of Harvey and Jeanette Crewe, which was in June 1970. Mm -hmm. um, there were also there was also Jennifer Beard, um, was murdered in Haast, Betty McKay near Thornton, um, as well as the Walker murder and the Crewe's murders. So there were a few cases that were waiting to be solved. So Jennifer Mary Baird was a Welsh hitchhiker that had disappeared on January the 19th of 1970, that is, before the crime of Ollie Walker. She was found dead 19 days after the disappearance, which seems to be the same day of her murder. And this is another cold case that it's still unsolved until nowadays. We should also add the crime of Mona Blades, who was also 18-year-old. She was a Kiwi. And she disappeared while hitchhiking from Hamilton to Hastings on Queen's birthday weekend in 1975. Mona Blades was never found, neither dead or alive. And these cases are important to mention because on the 90s, on 1995, the New Zealand police used modern methods to investigate the possibility that all these three young women have been fall prey to a serial killer, that is, Ollie Walker, Mona Blades, and Jennifer Beard. Mm. But that inquiry, that um, that investigation went blank, so mm. it never yeah. turned out to have any positive yeah, Unfortunately, results. didn't bear fruit and was able, unable to come up with a, a suspect. Because what are the odds of so many young women just disappearing? Mm. I mean, the, 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 there is there is a chance because they are not only serial killers. We also have misogynist crimes. And I actually mm. think that Ollie Walker, since she was sexually abused, counts as a misogynist mm -mm. hate crime. Yeah. The series Sensing Murder uh, turns out to be interesting because by the end of that episode... There are two psychics that are participating, a mm. uh, Kiwi psychic and the Australian psychic, Deb Weber, uh, working with the police with uh, an identity-making software. She actually made one of a vision that she claims she is having by communicating to the spirit of Olive Walker. So shortly after this episode was aired on 2006, 
the Rotoriopolis got a new flood of leads and well communication mm -hmm. of neighbors of Rotorua that thought that they could help. So after that, the police of Rotorua comes to find um, a man, a young man, that by 2007 was in jail for some sex-related crimes. Now, mm. we don't have the name of that man. We couldn't find it in any news. Mm. But we know that he was 16 at the time of the murder. Mm -hmm. What's the major important... I guess it is extenuating... Uh, well, sorry, it is, it is... I mean, he was what, in the news and in Sense and Murder, we have um, the opinion of George Stoughton, a police detective of Rotorua. So he actually says that he followed the mm -hmm. leads of those people that called the police after this psychic made this quote-unquote hidden ticket. Mm -hmm. So they actually took a look at uh, the leads, and he says that many people were overruled, as suspects mm. because they were children at the time of the murder. Mm. But there was this one, this one guy that was 16, so it's very likely that he would have fit a size 6 Kiwi Flex boot. But perhaps most importantly mm. is that since Olive was sexually abused, this guy mm. that I'm repeating, we don't have the name, we don't know much about him, we only know that he's from Torua. Mm. was in jail for sex crimes. Yes. And in a news from 2016, I think it's one of the newest leads that, uh, mm. that I gave you. It's really weird because the police has a, a DNA profile that was taken from the remains of, of Oli Walker. Mm. But, but it, was, that, it was said that this particular individual had a record for preying on women in a stranger mm -hmm. murder manner. Mm -hmm. And that at the time, he uh, he is of very small stature and would easily have fit into size six shoes. This article from the New, Ze New Zealand Herald says that, quote, uh, however, police have not got any new information or breakthroughs in DNA to allow them to progress the investigation. Mm. Furthermore, uh, George Stoughton, Detective Sergeant George Stoughton, says that they didn't have any plans to interrogate this man, even though on 2016 he went free. Mm. So, okay, I understand that DNA is a very precise science, mm. but I'm kind of surprised and I'm feeling some sort of I feel suspicious about the police because they wouldn't even interrogate him. But then again, this is the last news that we could found on the case on 2017. Mm. Yeah. And it could also be that the evidence they, they do have isn't substantial enough to actually push for a conviction or push for a, for a charge. Mm -hmm. And because of that, anything would rely on the man self-incriminating himself or confessing and that you wouldn't necessarily want to give away any extra information that he could then use to form a defence before a definite charge with, you know, the with, with irrefutable evidence yeah, I guess would that, provide. 
I think it's so they are not going to interrogate him, but um, I'm also thinking that this lead on this man came from an hidden ticket made by a psychic Whoa. on a TV show. So this detective sergeant is also on the TV show, and he, unlike his senior, Bill Beck, Mm -hmm. Bill Beck is more like the old school detective like yeah yeah if, if people want psychics we're going to bring psychics like George Stoughton is younger mm -hmm. and he lasts a bit of the idea of working with a psychic yeah. and rightfully so but um, mm -hmm. that's the last lead on that last suspect yes um, there's an interesting new development from 2015 mm -hmm. Because, okay, we talk about Bill Beck and George Stoughton, but there was also a senior detective mm -hmm. in the first when the crime was recent mm -hmm. that was called uh, Jack Collins. Mm -hmm. So Jack Collins recently passed away, but um, what do you know about Chris? Well, it was at the time with so many murders of young people around the around that era of the North Island that it seems a bit of pressure was being uh, brought to bear on the on the senior members of the police force uh, particularly from um, assistant commissioner Bob Walton mm -hmm. who came out to be very infamous because he was involved in the Cruz murder Yes. Uh, that is, I, I don't remember the name of the group. I got them. I can't. Harvey and Jeanette. Harvey and Jeanette grew a yeah. couple that were, like we say before, found murder on July of 1970. Mm -hmm. So, according to a New Zealand Herald article, Jack Collins was interviewed by a journalist and res researcher, Chris Perth, who wrote a book called All the Commissioner's Men, which is basically. Um, the story about the investigation of this crime, but especially how the police, mm -hmm. including the commissioner, Bob Walton, incriminated an innocent man, Arthur Allen Thomas, and actually sent him to jail for at least... Ten years. Ten years. Up to ten years. Yep. They put some shotgun shells in his house to incriminate him. Mm -hmm. So this is a well-known story about this case of police misconduct. Yes. But what this author, Chris Bird, tells about Jack Collins is that Collins was working in the Rotorua CEB mm -hmm. and that Bob Walton have actually pressured Collins to investigate or more like push the investigation on the murder of Ollie Walker against a relative of her, mm -hmm. which we believe... Mm -hmm. For what we know on Sensing Murder, is the same person that is mentioned on the series. Yes. This uncle that had an alibi. Yeah. According to the journalist Chris Perth, Jack Collins was being pressured to incriminate this man, even mm -hmm. though he had an alibi. Mm -hmm. And shortly after, Jack Collins was moved away from the CIB and he was transferred back into uniform. Mm-hmm and was sent to Wellington. Mm -hmm. So he never got to work as a detective ever again. For his, uh, quote-unquote, insubordination. Mm -hmm. And in not uh, 
yeah, not uh, pursuing the murder investigation, directing it towards a certain conclusion, which this senior police person was had a reputation for doing, and in doing so led to the wrongful conviction and then the uh, a royal pardon for the uh, Arthur Allen Thomas um, due to the miscarriage of justice that saw him convicted and wrongfully in, imprisoned. In the Cruz murder. No, in no, the Cruz, Yeah, in the Cruz murders. So, I mean, this is this came out to be... Um, significant uh, information because we we can now know that there was a level of police but i would say that police is corrupt everywhere but in this case in particular we know that some of the high authorities were corrupted and yep. they were pushing into perhaps incriminating someone of the family of mm. olive herself but um, still nowadays we don't know much mm. We we still don't know who were the perpetrators of perpetrators of this child. Unfortunately, not adolescent. Well, I mean, the one thing though is, thanks to the integrity of well, at the time Detective Collins, but Mister Collins, we saw that we didn't get a wrongful conviction and someone languishing in in prison for some, for a crime they didn't commit, and with a with a case kept open that any new sources of, of information were taken seriously and not just dismissed out of hand or not even logged because case closed, mm-hmm. not not entertaining any more uh, investigations. Exactly. Yes. Um, there is one theory mm. that might fit in this case, but this theory mm. only appears in this book by a person or person mm. unknown, this obscure book as I read in some reviews mm. and I'm still wondering why was it an obscure book. Mm. I look on the background of uh, George Joseph and it was a journalist and lawyer. Mm-hmm. In the introduction of this book uh, he also says that he's a pro death penalty which I don't agree at all mm. <laughs> but anyhow mm. I just want to say about this yeah, yeah. theory. I'm going to quote directly from the book. Rotorua is one of New Zealand's most popular tourist resorts and has a large transient population. At the time of the murder, the American liner Mariposa was in Auckland, and a large number of tourists, as well as some members of the crew, were spending two days visiting the attractions of Rotorua. By the time the police inquiries got underway, the ship had left, but at no stage had the police considered that the dreadful crime had been committed by any passenger or member of the crew of the Mariposa, end quote. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a fantasy, it's like a super weird crime novel hypothesis, mm-hmm. like some crew member of some tourist just getting to a city and violently murdering abusing and, and murdering a complete stranger mm-hmm. out of the blue. We are only mentioning it because when we look at the forensic evidence, it seems like the police in Rotorua actually did a good job. Mm. There's a lot of research. There were uh, many, uh, I mean, a lot of people were uh, interrogated and there were many witnesses. Mm. Because like I said, perhaps uh, Olive wasn't a popular girl. I mean, in a traditional way, it wasn't outgoing or extravagant. Mm. But uh, she was very well known by the community. And 
all, almost 2,000 vehicles were also investigated. Mm. And no one was found in Rotorua that could fit with the profile. The, the murder was also investigated in the frame of a serial killer, mm. and it also didn't turn out. And we have this suspect that mm. was in jail for rape that was from Rotorua. Mm. But it seems like the DNA didn't match him. Or was inconclusive. Or was inconclusive. I really want to know what does that mean. What, how can a DNA be inconclusive? Well, well. <laughs> I really wonder what they wouldn't interrogate the men. But mm. like we said, the last news we found about this case mm. are from 2017. Mm. So perhaps a complete stranger to his murdering this girl and then fleeing New Zealand might actually have been make sense mm. it's sad you know because there it was 51 years ago mm. and i think i couldn't find the last news about olive's mother mm. was from 2006 and the mother was over 80 yeah. years old so i'm thinking that perhaps she had it's passed on but away but the father harry the pope died on 1982 at the age of 76 years old. And were Mary and Mahire, one of the sisters of Olive, says in the Sense of Murder um, episode that they really believe that he died because of the sadness of losing Olive. Mm. That it, he was like you know, the stereotypical tough guy. Okay, he was a war veteran. I don't know what how the Maoris process losing people and murder but they said that he always kept everything mm. to himself mm. and that's what he killed him and they also said that he would spend a lot of hours in the local pub mm. but after the murder of olive he would all only have like one beer and go back to his home because he was afraid he might be having beer with the murder of mm. his daughter and i think it's it's so heartbreaking. Yeah. Like, it's so sad. And, and it's uh, it's so sad that um, even being so old, um, even be having so much uh, information about the case, it's so hard to find. It's, um, well, I'm thinking that it wasn't a, it wasn't a white victim. I think it mm. probably has something to do with that. You know, when a white woman dies, it's mm -hmm. always on the news. Yeah. But a person of a different ethnicity, it's, uh, the story is much different. Mm. I'm thinking that perhaps this was the case. Yeah. What do you say about that, Chris? I think that in New Zealand, while there are definitely issues around people of colour and the, the First Nations people not getting fair representation, I still think at this time, particularly because of the the respect and the love of the community for Olive and for the walkers, while she quite possibly didn't get the same representation as as a, as a white uh, person or white woman mm -hmm. getting murdered, she still received enough attention that even years later, people, everyone in the, in the area remembers it, and it's a lot of people around New Zealand still know the, the name Olive Walker. I'm trying to find mm. her killer or killers, yes. perhaps. And that while 
you know, I, well, I guess we'll never know, but this, this definitely was taken seriously by the police and it cost a, it did cost a senior detective his career. It did. For not wanting to sweep it under the under the under the rug for just a, a convenient uh, accusation, a, co- a convenient closing of the case. However, yeah, still to this day, even with best efforts and as a serious um, investigation by all accounts, it still hasn't been able to turn up the killer, unfortunately. Perhaps the killers were exactly abroad from New Zealand. Perhaps it wasn't. Perhaps it wasn't. But was it was just one very, very extremely sneaky individual or individuals mm-hmm. that did it. Yep. Who managed to, have just by pure luck more than anything. A tremendous luck. Yes, tremendous luck. Being able to avoid mm-hmm. scrutiny of the police thus far. Though, you never know. Hopefully in the, in the near future, Olive's killer will be brought to justice her family will be able to rest rest with that small if it is comfort with that small comfort knowing her killer is being brought to justice named so well that was the fifth episode Mm -hmm. where can our listening listeners found us chris they can find us at a history of evil men on Facebook, we have pages on Instagram, Twitter, very recently. Yes, just added Twitter, and also on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, Spreaker, um, practically any podcast platform. Platform. We're branching out. We have an email if you feel like writing something to us, Mm -hmm. maybe a suggestion or a claim, maybe a a suggestion for our next case. Um, our email is a history of evil men at, at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. We don't call it at in Spanish, it's arroba, so I forget arroba. about that. Yeah. And we have a Patreon page, mm-hmm. patreon.com slash a history of evil men. If you would like to throw us a few dollars. And once again, we would love to thank the absolutely magnanimous Steph Animal for allowing us to use her beautiful music from Spooky House. From Spooky House. For our intro and outro. Big Steph, we love you. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners to sticking up with us. All right. Good night. Good night. <laughs>